get some moms up in here to fix the supply chain. We are ready to go. <laughs> Seriously, we are made for that. Like three kids, you all need a lunch to pack, right? No problem. I will line that supply chain up. Here's your meals. We got to address the suburban women problem because it's real. Welcome to the Suburban Women Problem, a podcast for red, wine, and blue. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda Weinstein. I'm Jasmine Clark. I'm Beverly Batt, filling in for Rachel Vindman. And you're listening to the Suburban Women Problem. So we've talked before about how Republicans love to talk about inflation. They claim that inflation is what Americans really care about, as if we only care about one thing. I'm a mom, right? Which means I'm a multitasker. I can care about gas prices and reproductive freedom and democracy all at the same time. Thank you very much. But it is true that inflation and the economy affects families in a very direct and personal way. So today, we wanted to talk about the economy. And as the resident economist on the pod, I'm also going to answer some questions we got from listeners on our Facebook group, Sweep. But before we get to that, Welcome, Beverly. Bev is the executive producer of the podcast, so she's always behind the scenes with us, but every once in a while, she joins us at the mic. Last week, Rachel recorded the pod from a parking lot in France, so we thought we'd give her a week off to actually enjoy her family trip. Thanks for filling in, Bev. Y'all, I am so happy to be here uh, to, to talk about the economy and inflation. And I was literally just having this conversation with somebody about, they were talking about what's going to be top of mind come November. Is it going to be the economy or is it going to be Roe and the issues around extremism? And I was like, baby, it's the same thing. Right. And abortion is an economic issue. And all of these things tie in together. And if you don't think that the extremism plays a role in this economic unrest, you, you know, got another thing coming. I think that's such a good point because when polling typically shows fairly consistently that the economy is the number one issue for people. But what does that mean, right? So when people say the economy is my number one issue, that can mean something very different. So when you guys hear that, what do you think about when you hear like the economy is important? What do you think that means that is re- that they really care about? So you know what's interesting about this question is I've been knocking on doors. So I've been going door to door as a part of my campaign and actually talking to people. And one of the questions that I ask at the door is, what is your top issue right now? And at first when I ask it, people kind of just look at me perplexed, like, issue? What do you mean? So then I give them a list and I'll say, all right, uh, the economy, guns, reproductive rights, climate change. And as I start rattling things off, some people are like, oh, the economy. And I'm like, okay, well, um, you know, what specifically um, is concerning you about the economy? And a lot of people just say like gas prices. And while yes, gas prices are part of the economy, I don't think they're like the entire economy. Um, It might feel like your entire economy if you have to drive anywhere. But I also um, noticed recently that gas prices have been going down in my area. So I wonder as a candidate, And as a state representative, um, number one, I have no control over gas prices. I I don't push that button. I do not decide. Oh, you don't? You didn't set your local gas? You don't walk into your gas station like, do you know who I am? I'm Jasmine Clark. I'm going to pay $2 a gallon. And they're like, okay. (laughs) I do not get to set gas prices as a individual or as a state representative. Um, Just to let you all know, neither does the president. But that's neither here nor there. But what I do wonder is if people are just connecting the economy with gas prices, then if gas prices go down, 
is economy still going to be that top of mind thing? Because, I mean, when people think of economy, they think of something they have to spend money on. So if prices start to go down, will that actually be a top of mind issue going into November? Or, you know, or or, are we going to try to just force it to be by just continuously talking about it as if things are all bad? We're talking about it now, and I think, not to get too caught up in it, but a lot of it is media narrative. It's, oh my goodness, the price of gas is so high. So when when you ask somebody what type is top of mind, they're going to tell you what they just heard, right? What they just saw on the news. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, gas prices are so high. But they're not going to report on them going down the same way, and it's not going to be, hey, everybody, the gas prices are so low. Did you see how low the gas that gas is going down? This is amazing. You know, that's not going to be a news story. So it's never going to be top of mind people when things are getting better. It's always going to be top of mind when things are getting worse. That's a good point. And I think the Fox News narratives tend to break through a little bit more. And so even now with gas prices declining, now you have the Fox News narrative getting out of, well, they're going down too fast, right? This is really bad for small gas station business owners. Like, how could Biden do this to them? And so part of what we also have to realize is it really doesn't matter what our economy is doing. Fox News will say it's shit no matter what, Yes, right? So we have to kind of t- realize that. They're never going to say, well, you know, the economy's going real great, guys, but we still want you to vote for our guy. doesn't matter what the economy's doing. They're always going to say the economy is bad. Here in Georgia, our governor just turned down the extra funding for that would go to food banks. And his rationale was the economy is strong and unemployment is at record lows. We don't need the money. However, tomorrow he will campaign on how Biden's economy is crappy and we absolutely positively must get rid of Biden because everything's all bad. And it's like, it's the same person, same guy, probably even the same week, but somehow the economy is so strong that we don't need to help people out with food but the economy is so bad that we do need to do whatever it takes to get rid of whoever made the economy bad, which apparently is Joe Biden all by himself. That's a good point. So I think about when we think about the economy, I think about my family and I think about my community and I think about my state and how things are going. But that's not typically the narrative that breaks through. The narrative that breaks through is this crafted message of what's going on in other states around you. And the truth is, we know a lot less about what's going on in other states around us. We know the most about what's going on in our household, in our communities, but that's not the national narrative that we hear. And when we think about the economy and the way that I personally think we should think about it is, how is my family doing? How are my friends doing? How is my community doing? And I think we need to think about it on a very personal level. And when we start to think about it on a personal level, I think that's where you see the economy touches a lot of different issues, right? It's not just gas prices. It's not just prices. It's not just jobs. It's a whole lot of things. And then we start to see things like you said, Bev, right? It's also reproductive freedoms. We have a woman in Louisiana was forced to give birth. I don't know if you guys saw this. She was forced to give birth to a non-viable fetus when her water broke at 16 weeks rather than getting the DNC that her doctor recommended would be safer. Right, so she ended up losing a liter of blood, and the doctor said this was the first time in a 15-year career that they couldn't give a patient the care they needed. Right, so when we're talking about the economy, right, those reproductive freedoms, 
those strengthen our economy, right? Women dying is actually not good for our economy, which will happen with this. But women having to take time off work. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, most women work up until the day they give birth, right? Like, because we have such crap maternal care in this country for, you know, protections on jobs and such. Oh, yeah. I had people asking me, like, are you due soon? And I was like, I'm uh, on Monday. And like, oh, that's coming up. And I was like, no, last Monday. <laughs> it was last Monday. Yeah. Like, that's a whole, that's a whole other episode. We can go down that path. But just so she's having to recover from almost dying from having right. the not being able to see receive medical care. Now who's going to feed her kid? Yeah. I mean, she could have had a DNC and been out right. and basically been done with it, but she wasn't. And when you look at things like re reproductive freedoms, it is associated with right. higher labor force participation rates. So when you want to hear talking points of, oh, nobody wants to work, you can't work when you're in the hospital. And when you're having this procedure you never wanted to have, but are being forced to have by the government. Or you're on bed rest and you just like, you know, and you did not have the choice to say, I do not want this for me right now. There's just so many different things that I think when it comes to reproductive freedom, I also think about the attack on contraceptives that we're hearing about now. Um, I mean, we're getting to the point now where they're not only telling you, you can't, um, in certain states, you won't be able to get life-saving medical treatment or you won't be able to get um, abortion care, which is healthcare, but they're getting to the point where they're like, and now we're not even gonna be able to get contraceptives. That opens up a whole other can of worms when it comes to our economy and economic freedom. You cannot have economic freedom if you do not have reproductive freedom. It is all in the same thing. If you open the package and you let one thing fall out, everything falls out. That's absolutely right. So, and when we have, so you have more women working, women can go to college. So now we have a more educated workforce. Women can have careers like doctor and lawyer and microbiologist because we can control when we have kids. And you also get this like zero sum mentality, I feel like, like that we talked about with Heather McGee. And we think, well, now women are doing better because they have reproductive freedom. So does that mean men are doing worse? No, that doesn't mean men are doing worse. And so I actually have uh, research that shows for every 10% increase in women's labor force participation, wages increase 5% for men and women. So wages actually go up for men and women when we have more women working. There's the unintended consequences too of what you know, not being able to do family planning could do to your career. I mean, I remember, I, I know that I've read, and Amanda, you could probably speak to this, but, you know, what kind of hit does your career take when you have an unplanned pregnancy? And if you get pregnant so early in your career and don't have that ability, like that's going to hurt your earning potential for your whole life. Absolutely. So the the younger that you have those children, you tend to see those women are more likely to be in poverty. And this goes with the, I think it's the turn back studies on reproductive reasons and abortion care, that those women are more likely to be in poverty, the children are more likely to be in poverty when they are denied an abortion. And we generally see that women can do better, right, when they can control those pregnancies. And the interesting thing with this is, as the number of children for women go up, they are more likely to have lower wages than they would have otherwise. And that's actually not true for men. And if we think about why might that be true, so actually the more children men have, the higher their wages go. And if you think about it, it's about childcare and who takes on that burden, who does you know, most of the shopping to go buy diapers, who does the errands to take your kid to the doctor, who stays at home when your kid is sick. So that burden still falls disproportionately on women 
which takes away from the time that they can work. And we also just don't have a very good safety net. So we don't have paid leave. We don't have childcare. And when we don't have that safety net, women are the safety net. So we do have a safety net. It's women. Women are it. But when women are the safety net, they're forced to pull that load without any help. And it takes away from what they can actually do in the workforce. You know, as I think about, you know, what I ask people at the doors, another thing that comes up in conversation a lot is democracy itself, voting rights and things like that. And they all of those things also tie into the economy. Uh, When you do not have the freedom to choose who is your elected representative, when maps are drawn to basically already have a certain outcome and completely takes the voters out of the equation, or when things like January 6th happens and there aren't really a whole lot of consequences so people think it's okay, all of those things also are going to have a direct effect on our economy. So when people say they care about the economy or they care about inflation, you should also care about you know, access to the ballot box. No, that's such a great point. So I think Republicans focus on the economy and inflation to cover up their extremist agenda. They want to cover up attempts to overthrow the government and to change our entire system of government to one that is authoritarian. And oftentimes the kind of unsaid message is, you know what, let's go to this authoritarianism. Let's give up democracy because we'll be getting some kind of economic safety or freedom. You won't have to worry about inflation as much, but it's just not true. If you look at authoritarian governments around the world, so if you look at Turkey, if you look at Hungary, if you look at Venezuela, they tend to have struggling economies. Their economies are not doing well, right? So this is just this false idea that we will get some type of economic security through authoritarianism. That, that's wild when people say that to me. Like, I, I don't understand that argument because if if America, if the United States is supposed to be this global leader, right, the, in a global economy, we're going to lose trade partners as we, if we dissent, if we lose democracy, right? And, you know, what's that going to do to the to the stock market, which is what most people, you know, see as the economy, right, which is its own problem, as you spoke to earlier. But I just, your 401k is not going to be safe in authoritarian hands. It's the most terrifying thing at all, of all, right? If we get rid of, you know, banking regulations and go back to wild spending and all of those type of, of, of scary things, like that is, that's terrifying for what our future holds. Like from an economic standpoint, yes, but just from like how we live our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a good time to remind everyone that we are now 15 weeks out from the midterms and that time is going to fly by. I know we keep saying this every election, but you all, this election is so important to democracy, to making sure that we don't go down and become that authoritarian state. This is an all hands on deck situation and we need to act now. So one thing you can do right now is sign up for the great troublemaker turnout. You can visit redwine.blue to learn more. You know, there are people that are open to authoritarianism because they think, oh, well, my people will be the ones in authority, so it's all good. I'm okay with it because the people that I like are there. As long as it's my guy, 
I would love for them to be my guy forever. I would love for them to be president forever because I like this person. That's, first of all, extremely anti-American, extremely uh, non-patriotic or not patriotic, whatever the word is. You Um, like that American flag. You should also (laughs) like what it stands for. Exactly. Uh, But also it just doesn't make sense. I just don't think people even know what they want. They're just like saying stuff because someone else said it and they're like, oh, that sounds good. I feel like what I hear people talk about when they talk about the economy is they don't talk about, you know, oh, you know, I'm doing okay and I'm going to go take a vacation and we're going on vacation next week, right? They're doing pretty fine. But what I hear them talk about is, you know what, but I don't know about the economy because I'm hearing this and that this that they're hearing is usually a talking point, right? Probably originated from Fox News and it just spread and they're hearing this about some other state, about somewhere else. You know, it's not my neighborhood. And I think that is really the wrong way to think about this. When we think about the economy, we need to think about what is happening to me. And there are are people who are struggling, right? So with inflation is hard for especially lower income families, paying those higher gas prices, that is really hard. We do need to think about that. And part of what we need to think about is that safety net. When we think about our economy and that safety net, what you hear from the Republicans is we can't afford it, right? That's going to hurt our economy if we spend this you know, money to build a safety net. But it's actually not true. So I think about the safety net as kind of like a trampoline, right? We all could have something bad happen to us. That could be cancer. That could be a crazy flood. That could be a fire. That could just be losing your business when something bad happens, right? When you have a safety net, it's like this trampoline to bounce you back up on your feet. The quicker we can get people to bounce back up on their feet, the quicker they can get back to work and our economy can keep chugging along. But if that safety net has giant holes in it and people fall through, that's gonna hurt our economy. I am a one income household and we have to do it that way because my son has special needs and care for him would be extremely expensive. I'm the person that works. My husband stays home and that's how it's always been. And, and God, would it be so cool? And would my husband love it? Like when time has allowed, maybe like during the school year stuff, he does contract work and, and, and whatever, but it would be so nice if we had even had that option, right, for two for two incomes. And so an example of a safety net would be if we would have childcare. Right. If we're gonna pay taxes, I would like to see I would like to be like, oh yeah, my taxes paid for that. And so when I'm in my community and I, you know, take part in a, a park or, you know, like hang out at the park or something like that, I'm like, oh yeah, my taxes paid for this. Or when I see a pothole getting filled, I'm like, oh yeah, my taxes paid for this. But federally, I would love to also be like, you know, when I send my kid to daycare and I don't have to worry about paying astronomical prices, but I also know that daycare is going to be there because those bills are still getting paid because there is a safety net there. Like that would be amazing and it would help everyone even people of means, it would help. We talked about this with Heather McGee and Amanda, you brought it up about this whole zero sum thing. It's not like if we help people who have lower incomes, that somehow people who have higher incomes are losing out. Like the right wing has found a way to basically demonize anything that might help someone of lower means so that people who would also be helped now feel like, oh, we can't have that because we're giving it to someone that I don't feel is deserving of that service. It's short-sighted and they don't follow that through. So what they think about is, right, daycare would cost money and they stop there, right? Yes, it absolutely will cost money. Pre-K costs money, right? But research shows for every dollar you spend on quality early child education, you save seven. It makes so much more sense. And when we think about the safety net, so one thing I think about is 
I think about risk. We actually need people to take risk in our economy. So a risk can be starting a restaurant. It could be starting your own bakery. That's a big risk. And honestly, it's a big risk a lot of women don't take, not because they're too risk averse, it's because we don't have a good safety net, right? So if we had a better safety net, more people would take that risk to start that bakery, to start that new shop that they've been thinking about starting, and you get more businesses and more economic activity, and people take the risk that we need. And if something happens, like you start your bakery and you go bankrupt or it goes out of business, you have that safety net to say, you know, you tried, let's bounce back and go to your next job. What do you think, like just shifting focus a little bit, is something that bugs you right now? Because there's so much talk about the economy, right? And I know that you are an economist and you know you're seeing the stuff and you have to see all these bad takes like what is bugging you about what you're saying right now oh man my biggest pet peeve is that biden is controlling our economy he's causing gas prices to be higher that biden caused inflation and that is my biggest pet peeve because it's just simply not how the economy works and i am hearing the free market especially libertarians make this argument and I know they know that's not how the economy works. To me, it's very disingenuous to hear it from that crowd when they are like the capitalist crowd trying to say the president controls our entire economy and prices. That's simply not true, right? Prices are driven by businesses supplying goods and services. They're driven by people, consumers, demand, buying those goods and services. But the other thing I don't get is, why aren't we talking about the companies more, right? If we need more oil and gas, why aren't we talking about the oil and gas companies? Produce more, right? Why aren't we talking about why can't you fix your supply chain issues? So we actually have research in my college that shows the more women who are working in supply chains, the more efficient those supply chains are. Guess what? It's also a male-dominated field, which also means we need more women to be in those supply chains because they can get our supply chains up and working, but we still don't have the things women need. Get some moms up in here to fix the supply chain. We are ready to go. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, no, I yes. will put this Seriously. in my, my bullet journal and I will figure it. Yes, exactly. Like we are made for that. Like three kids, you all need a lunch to pack, right? Got this. I will get you right dinner for four kids tonight because we got another kid over. No problem. I will line that supply yes, chain up. Yes, Here's your meals. Yes. I know. It totally makes sense. I saw that research. I was like, mm-hmm. Yep. Women would be better at that. Not surprised at all. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been really fun. You know, I love to discuss economics. We're going to take a break and then we'll be back to answer some questions from our listeners. There is a lot for suburban women to stand up against right now. Between gun violence, abortion restrictions, book bans, and everything else, it can feel overwhelming. But if we all join together, we can make a difference. Red Wine and Blue has launched the Great Troublemaker Turnout, and we need you to join us. Talking to the people in your own network is the most effective way to influence voters, and we are here to help you tap into your superpower. You can sign up for the Great Troublemaker Turnout by going to theswppod.com or at the link in the show notes. Welcome back, everyone. So we had a lot of questions about the economy from our listeners in our Facebook group, Sweep that suburban women engaged, empowered, and pissed. I'm going to answer them as best as I can. All right, here we go. 
The first question we got is from a listener named Trish. She said, I hear so many of my cranky neighbors talk about how nobody wants to work, which is a bizarre thing to believe since unemployment is at 3.6%, which is below what we consider natural unemployment. I'm guessing it's because lots of people are noticing reduced staff at their favorite restaurant or they keep hearing about it on the news. So what's really going on with the labor market? That's a good question. It is a great question. Uh, So this one's pretty interesting too, actually. So there is a history of people saying nobody wants to work. And it actually goes back, as far as I can tell, the 1800s, right? So this is not a new argument, right? We will hear this argument in the next year and the next year. No matter what the economy does, they'll be there to say nobody wants to work. But right now, we have what economists call a tight labor market. I don't know if you guys, have you heard anyone say that the labor market is tight? No, I've never heard that before. So you might hear pundits or economists say that we have a tight labor market, which basically means that we have a lot of vacant jobs and the workers are pretty scarce to get those jobs. So when you think about that restaurant Trish was talking about, you see a lot of vacancies, you see a lot of hirings, but we just don't have enough workers right now to fill that. And part of what that means is also, if you can't hire someone, you probably need to offer a higher wage. But a lot of companies are gonna be a little reluctant to offer that higher wage because if something changes, you can't lower someone's wage. It's pretty hard to lower someone's wage. We call that kind of sticky wages. Easier to give someone a raise than to lower their wage, right? They might get pissed and leave. So when we think about what's going on with that, we also have COVID still, we have an estimated 1 million Americans who are not in the labor force that we talked about because they have long COVID symptoms and complications that means they're unable to work. Something came up and the other day in conversation that I think gets left out of the conversation, and that is just how much immigration actually plays a role in our economy. And, you know, Republicans spend a lot of time talking down about immigrants. And at some, at one point, they kept talking about how the immigrants were taking all the jobs. And what we're now seeing, they weren't taking the jobs. They were actually just doing jobs that needed to be done. But now that you have reduced the amount of um, immigrants that can come in, uh, you are making putting a lot more restrictions on the migrant workforce and things like that. Now you're seeing that those jobs were not taken. Um, Those jobs were filled. Exactly. And and now they're not filled. Mm -hmm. And so now when you go to your restaurant, you're wondering why it's taking so long for your food to come out. And it's taking so long because there was a person who had that job and that person is no longer there. All right, so let's move on to our next question. And this question comes from a listener named Leslie. And she says, I'm really concerned about the economy and impact on elections. Will the negative economic impacts on families outweigh all the negatives the GOP have against them, like the January 6th trial, Trump, or overturning Roe? I mean, so we've talked about how polls consistently show people say the economy is their top issue. Right now, what that actually means, I think, is different to each person when they think about the economy. So I would really love if pollsters, if there's any pollsters listening, can you please ask people what they mean by the economy? Because it's actually pretty unclear. It's follow up (laughs) questions. Oh, right. So it's a big influence. 
But I think what moves people politically is what affects them personally, right? And I think we need to talk about the economy in ways that are more real to people. How is your job going? What about wages, right? Are, you know, what about, you know, the benefits that you're earning, right? Are you off being offered more flexible workspace or, or more flexible work-life balance, right? So I think those are all the things that we need to talk about when we talk about the economy. But as we mentioned, we also need to talk about all of those things when you think about Oh, trying to overthrow the government, moving to an authoritarian state, overturning Roe. All of those things affect our economy too. And we need to talk about that. We need to talk about what it means to our economy to deny people freedom. To Jasmine's point, like, are people going to want to come to this country to fill any, not low-skill jobs, but high-skill jobs? Like, we already see it with kids not wanting to come to college here, right? And that's a huge... Like that's going to hurt universities so hard. Yeah, that's been hurting my university with uh, enrollment as we see the you know international students has gone down so much that it's so to me I think when a lot of people think about the economy they think about jobs and we don't think about the wins in our economy. So our most recent job report showed that we added three hundred and seventy-two thousand jobs. That's an excellent jobs report, right? So higher prices, does that hurt for a lot of families? Absolutely, right? That is a struggle for a lot of families. But do you know what is a bigger struggle? Not having a job. And so I think one thing we need to talk about more is the wins. As much as Republicans talk about economy, 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 because that's what they told, they've been told, that's the only thing right now that they can talk about that gets people on their side. And the, and to be clear, they are not talking about any solutions. They're just trying to scare people to dang death about what's going on with the economy. But they never are like, and this is why we are proposing this particular thing. They don't really have a plan. The plan is just make everybody afraid and tell them that somehow we'll save the day once that day comes. Um, but we also need to talk about, number one, the wins, as you said, Amanda, because the truth is most people don't know those job numbers, but we also have to continue to talk about the issues that people will affect people's day-to-day lives that can affect people's ability to, again, have economic freedom. So reproductive justice, access to health care, all of the things where right now Republicans don't want you to mention those things because you mention those things, they look bad. So they're trying to dominate the airwaves in our ears with uh, the economy because they feel like that's the only place where they get a little bit of a leg up. Well, and I think they have a fundamental misunderstanding of what suburban women think of when they think of the economy. Because, you know, as Amanda was pointing earlier, it's about you. And when you take away the the Wall Street of it all, you know what scares me about the economy and my economic future? Extremism. Yeah. Chaos. Mm. The not knowing if democracy is going to survive the next election. Like that affects my financial situation, the choices that I make more than anything. And so the economy is a top issue for me. And that's why, you know, and I think that I'm uh, not the only woman out there about that. You know, I think that a lot of us, when we say the economy is our top issue, it is talking about the instability, the chaos. It's not about how our 401k is sitting, right? So I think maybe they're going to come in for a shock when, yes, we're talking about the economy and it's a top issue. And that's why we're not voting for your ass. I mean, and I think you have that with red states, right? So I think there's a lot of women in red states right now wondering if they should be in those red states. Hello, I just moved. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, right? So we're thinking like, but then here's the thing, right? Bev, would you like start that bakery in Kentucky if you weren't thinking about moving? 
Absolutely not, right? So you have women who are kind of putting a lot of economic things on hold thinking, do I need to wait? And do I need to move to a state that will respect my reproductive freedoms, my daughter's reproductive freedoms, right? right? And that can put a lot of things on hold and it can become this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If we think the economy is gonna be bad, we don't go buy that car, then what happens to car sales, right? They go down and then we can actually cause a recession by thinking that there's going to be a recession. Which I think is what like Republicans want. Is they're like, they're like, we need something I bad to happen because right now all the bad things are us. So we need something else bad to happen. <laughs> so like, let's crash the economy and then hopefully everyone will blame Biden and then we'll be back on top and everyone will love us again. Um, that's pretty much what I think they're banking on. And then we'll destroy democracy. As yes. <laughs> but I also feel, but I also feel like the pundits think I feel like this is kind of a ground we cede to Republicans as Democrats, right? We kind of for a lot, for many years, ceded like, oh, yes, you're the party of family values and you're the pro-life party. Uh, no, they're not on both. Not right? on either. <laughs> no, no, they are not. I'm sorry. They are not. Right. But we also, I feel like we tend to also be like, well, you care more about the economy and jobs because you talk about it more. No, that's no, not they true. they don't. <laughs> All of the policies, you're right, we never hold them to what policy will help the economy. They never get asked the tough questions. Dems get asked the tough questions. And I feel like Dems often shy away from the economy or a lot of issues because they cede that ground too easily. And I think we need to stand up firmer because the policies Democrats are proposing are better for our economy, period. Better, exactly. And we that's the message that we have to put out. They're just telling you there's a problem and they're not actually offering a single solitary solution outside of make sure that uh, companies don't have to pay more taxes because somehow that's literally their solution to everything, it seems like. It's just like, well, just give tax credits to rich people and everyone else will be fine. Yeah, and that's the perfect segue to our next question, which is exactly about that. So this is from Renee who asks... I'd like to know if low taxes are really all corporations consider when moving to a state. My state, North Carolina, is bragging that it's number one for business, but is also defying a court order to fund our schools at a bare minimum level. What good are low taxes if schools, roads, and other public services are neglected? Oh my gosh, can I just point out one thing? Literally every state is the number one state to do business. (laughs) Georgia literally has huge posters saying they're the number one state to do business. And, you know, I went on a conference one time and it was like all these other states were there and people were getting up and introducing themselves. And then someone from Texas was like, yeah, I'm so-and-so from Texas and and we're the number one state to do business. And I was like, no, you're not. Georgia is. Like That's all they tell us. <laughs> and they're like, oh no, I have the proof right here. This random <laughs> magazine said that we're the number one state. And I realized every state just finds a magazine that makes them number one and then they just tout it. So no one is the number one state to do business because literally everybody is. Like It's crazy. <laughs> yep. Everyone claims to be number one because some random magazine had some metric that they used, right, to decide who's the best for business. Uh, so I can tell you based on real metrics and things like low corporate income taxes, Ohio ranks in the nation fifth lowest in terms of corporate income tax rates, but it ranks 39th for job growth, right? It is not the low taxes. If it was the low taxes, Ohio would be fifth highest for job growth, but we aren't. Right. So when we think about why is that, right? I keep hearing, you know, low taxes in this business environment. What's important? Americans now want to live in a place that they think is nice to live. And that is where people go live. 
So I actually have recent research um, that I've done with Mike Hicks and Emily Ornell that shows that quality of life, having a nicer place to live matters more for job growth than the quality of the business environment. And the strongest predictor of higher quality of life in an area, the strongest predictor is school spending. Oh, wow. Do you spend a lot on your schools? Makes sense though. Of course it does. Of course it, but like so simple. Of course that's it. Yes. Like why is that not on every billboard? (laughs) It should be. I know Ohio literally made billboards that went up in like Times Square saying like we have, you know, no corporate income tax rates. Don't you want to live in Ohio? And New Yorkers were like, no, (laughs) we don't. Or they think this matters. No, when really I heard someone on Twitter was like, oh, the suburbs just cater to families and that's why they're doing so well. And I was like, uh-huh, that's exactly That's exactly right. it. That is the yes. point. Yes, I know. you are right. Catering <laughs> to families. And it's not, it, families can be single people too, right? So you're considered a household, right? Catering to households is economic devo- development policy and it is the best economic development policy. All right, so before we get to our toast to joy, I wanted to give you all some rapid response answers you can give when you hear Republicans talking about the economy. I love that idea. Sometimes when people spout off Republican talking points, it can be hard to know the perfect thing to say in the moment. And then I just get real frustrated afterwards because I'll think about it at like 3 a.m. You know yes, what I mean? You're like, oh, oh, I should have said this. <laughs> I know. So I was thinking about this. I feel like one-liners are a lot easier when you can just tell a mistruth. Like it's easy to make a mistruth. It's a one-liner. But like to combat a mistruth, it's hard to do it in like a one-liner. Right. So one thing that I hear a lot is Biden failed to keep inflation in check, making it harder for families to get by. Yes, inflation makes it harder for families to get by, but ultimately inflation is kept in check and is the responsibility of the Federal Reserve, not the president. Uh, Inflation is a global phenomenon due to a number of factors. Among the most prominent is the inability of supply to meet demand right now. All right, so the next one I hear a lot, the Democrats' big spending agenda is hurting our economy. Oh, God. So the American Rescue Plan helped create those impressive job numbers that we just talked about. The infrastructure bill made investments in our country that will benefit families and businesses. We should be investing in the U.S. We should be investing in our communities. And despite all of these investments, the deficit went down under both years of the Biden administration. The deficit actually went up every single year under Trump. All right, so the last one I have here, let me see. Biden is to blame for high gas prices, right? So you may have seen those stickers on the gas stations, right? That Biden did that. Oh, I pull them off every chance. I've never seen one. I don't know. Oh, you haven't? Oh, I have seen them and I pulled them off too. (laughs) I've never seen, I've only seen like pictures of them, but I've never like seen one in real life. I mean, I I will tell you, it's good for your soul. Just a quick sidebar. There is a video of somebody getting arrested for putting one of those stickers on a gas pump. And it's just some bro guy, and he's, as you might imagine, very upset about it. And it's just poetry to watch. (laughs) I need to Google that. All right. High gas prices are a response of a global supply unable to meet global demand. But the global supply is lower in part because although there were the largest energy or the largest oil producer, Russia's the second largest producer typically. And the conflict with Ukraine takes them out of that energy market, right? So now you've just essentially taken out the second largest producer of oil and gas, which means on the global market, we don't have enough supply to meet demand and we haven't invested in the things to allow people to transition away from oil and gas, 
right? So that is a big issue for prices. And what we really need is to give people affordable alternatives to oil and gas. And we've needed to do that for decades. I mean, yeah, we actually have a planet that we need to try to save at some point. I mean, I know that's like low on people's priority lists, but like how much of this really matters if we just all like melt um, at some point because we didn't care about climate change. So that's a whole other episode though. It is, but that's a really good point. So there you have Nobel Prize winning economist William Nordhaus estimated for every one metric ton of carbon dioxide you emit, it costs $47, right? So even when you're driving around your vehicle, right, you're emitting carbon, you know, when companies are doing whatever that emits carbon, it costs $47, meaning we're starting to have to pay that $47 when you're dealing with fires in California and fires in Colorado. We are starting to pay that $47, which is the economy. weakening our economy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the economy. But ha- exactly. Oh my gosh. All right. So Thank you, Amanda, so much for your economic wisdom. And I just really appreciate your ability to kind of talk economy in layman's terms. So thanks so much for that. And now I think we will end our show by transitioning to our Toast to Joy, which is where we talk about something exciting or happy that's been going on with us since the last time we recorded. So Bev, I am going to start with you. What is your Toast to Joy for this week? Um, my toast to joy this week and has been for the past couple of weeks is just the, the Pennsylvania. Uh, I just moved, as I, I mentioned earlier, from Kentucky to uh, Pennsylvania for a number of reasons, but the political climate was was high up there. I've just so loved getting to know this area and it's beautiful and there are festivals to be had everywhere, um, which I love and, you know, so much to do, so much to see. Uh, I have yet to become best friends with Giselle Fetterman, but like, I'm really hoping it happens. <laughs> like it's close. It's close. Right. <laughs> One day, Giselle, come on the pod and be my best friend. But so, so that's, you know, I'm just absolutely enchanted with the area with my new house with with everything that's going on there Liam really loves it the setup that we've got going on we're around friends like I just I'm, I feel so much gratitude that this move was able to take place and and that we're able to settle in now so my my toast to joy is really it's Pittsburgh Pennsylvania love oh, it I love, love Pittsburgh they do have great like markets it is actually my favorite place to watch fourth of July fireworks because the stadium will do 4th of July fireworks and they have the, what's the hill called in Pittsburgh? There's like a hill that overlooks the river. I should know this. And There's so many hills. So you can actually watch the fireworks from this hill and see the fireworks at eye level and you can do it in an Italian restaurant. So it's air conditioned and you can be sipping wine while you watch fireworks at eye level over the city. It's the best. Really wish we would have had this conversation like three weeks ago. <laughs> but no, next year, next year for sure I'm doing that. Um, All right, Jasmine, what about you? What's your toast to joy? My toast to joy is actually to um, inquisitive minds and my students at um, the Emory Pre-College. So um, in the summertime, I get to teach high school students 
mostly juniors and seniors, who want to get a little dose of college. So it's like a two-week intensive course. I teach medical microbiology, and we're coming up on the end of the first two weeks. And when I say I have enjoyed my students so much, you know, sometimes being in the classroom and getting so bogged down with like the research and the pedagogy and evaluations and, you know, what I need to do to get promoted, sometimes teaching becomes, you know, or that that part of my career becomes a lot more methodical and less about like my passion. But when I teach these high school students, their just like thirst for knowledge, it revitalizes me. It actually just helps to remind me why I chose this as a career, because I just love how much they just like care. They ask so many questions and they're just so happy to be there and they're getting a little dose of college. So they stay in the dorms. And so, I mean, just watching them and also having kids that are at the age where they're going to start doing things like that. Like, I just think it's like a good reminder of why I got into teaching in the first place. So my toast to joy is to inquisitive minds and reminders of uh, my passion. That's beautiful. I love that. I love that. I want to do that at my university now. That sounds like such a good idea. It's such a great program. Yeah, it's such a great program. Oh, and it sounds like fun. Uh, So my Toast of Joy is similar because I feel like sometimes with parenting, it can become methodical where it's like, get your shoes on, eat your breakfast, eat your lunch. (laughs) And, you know, like you make sure they survive, which is, you know, that's a good goal. They survived today. They ate, you know, whatever. But so we're away, we're at a beach right now. And I feel like I can sometimes become too methodical about getting everything done. And, you know, kind of like you mentioned with teaching. And sometimes I forget that parenting is actually a lot of fun. Like just like getting on a boogie board or like jumping in a pool and like who can jump farther? Definitely me. Watch this. So much fun. And you forget how much fun parenting actually is when you don't have to make it. So methodical. Right. Just like trying to get through your daily routine. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I got to get this done. And then you forget, like, actually, this is a lot of fun. Love it. Thanks so much to everyone for joining us today. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with someone you know. As the midterms approach, it's more important than ever that we keep having these conversations. We'll see you again next week on another episode of The Suburban Women Problem. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red Wine and Blue. Our executive producer is Beverly Batt. Our supervising producer is Lindsay Quist. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstenson. Our production coordinator is Abigail Martin. And our social media coordinator is Shaylee Severino. Videos by Abigail Martin and Ashley Hufford. If you want to join the thousands of women who are turning out their friends and family to vote, you can sign up for the great troublemaker turnout by going to redwine.blue.